A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 170 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast, a legend, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report's website, second airborne division of www.starwarsreport.com episodes that can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman and with me like the C-3PO to my R2-D2, the EU guru himself the Count of Continuities Mr. Nathan P. Butler my goodness, it's idiots and self-righteous a-holes everywhere! Well, at least according to uh, a Twitter troll. Um, but one person who is with us this time, who is not an idiot or a self-righteous a-hole, is... Mark, That's who do right. we have with us? Joining us this week, super fan and family man, Jim Lehane! Hi, glad to be here. Glad I can uh, join in on the discussion of Heir to the Jedi. Yeah, now Jim, uh, me and you had the chance to meet up at Celebration Anaheim. Uh, really quick, uh, toss out some uh, thoughts you had about that whole event and process, man. Um, overall, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I had a lot of fun. There was um, after going to Celebration Six in uh, Orlando, I felt the lines were a lot better controlled. Um, there were some issues that I had uh, regarding them not knowing what to do with uh, medical people. Hmm. Uh, but other than that, I had a great time. Enjoyed wandering around, watching the the cosplayers, and uh, wishing I had any skills whatsoever in that regard. No doubt. Now I think you're the first person I've heard that that said that they thought the lines were better controlled at this one. So I'm kind of kind of kind of scary uh, for the Orlando thing there because I was I was under the impression that Orlando was just much better lines than what we had, bigger facility and all that. <laughs> I, I think I think part of the problem was that uh, from uh, I had talked to. Uh, Matt Martin from StarWars.com, and he said that they had sold about 60,000 tickets, um, mm. which is almost twice as much as the the biggest celebration they had. So you got to factor in the large amount of people that they're not yeah. used to. Yeah, that was definitely, I think, the biggest uh, downside for me was just the the amount of people in the space. Uh, but even that, it was enough to taint the experience for me. Uh, you know, a lot of fun overall. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we ponder Kevin Hearn's Heir to the Jedi. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Alright, in general, I felt that um, the book moved pretty slowly through the first half uh when they're it's clearly divided into two separate parts um the first half moved relatively slowly and then the second half started to pick up to the point where i'm thinking when will they actually finish this um but 
the interesting thing is that written in the first person, which is the only Star Wars novel um, other than I Jedi to do that, it was very weird. It felt a lot like Dear Diary. Today, I blew up the Death Star. And so uh, it, it was definitely a unique feeling just reading through it. And I got I got the feeling uh, also at various parts sound like an old time detective novel where uh, the detective sitting there and kind of has that monologue over the over the prose going. And she walked into my office. <laughs> so I can um, see that. Yeah, the, it, it, it happened a few times, mostly right at the beginning. And then after you kind of got into it, I, it felt a little more flowy. And uh, he made a couple comments in the middle of it that he felt like he wrote this all down after the entire novel was over. <laughs> yeah, there were a few moments toward the end where, where I had some feelings like that, where I was just like, I'm not sure if, if that's the right choice of, of way to word it. Uh, there were some things about the force, uh, you know, hot and cold, if you will, trying to keep this spoiler free without giving away too much. Uh, but there were, there were some angles to it that had me stopping and questioning, but luckily that happened towards the end. I had a, a Lord of the Ring journey feel to this one where it felt like there were a couple little tales that made up a bigger tale. Uh, the importance of the bigger tale, though, it, it didn't feel like it was something that really delivered. Uh, it felt like it was more like a story of grief. Um, like this story was more integral to Luke's journey, uh, but it wasn't an essential Luke story. It was just more of you know, how he came to get over the things that we saw him lose in A New Hope. Um, especially toward the end, there was a really a, a major scene where the grief kind of flowed. And, and I really felt like that scene was really the heart of the whole story in the end. Uh, that everything that led up to that moment led up to him finally accepting his grief and how his grief could possibly interact with the force and, and that when we get into the spoiler free stuff is the stuff I'm really kind of hoping to really touch on because I think for me that was the most profound reaction I had was was how Luke was interacting with the force due to the first person wow see this one this is a book that I'm really really torn on um, it's not an essential book we still don't have an essential book four novels in including Lords of the Sith we still don't have one that's essential for any new readers coming in to be able to understand anything else really um, I really like it and had a lot of fun with it while I was reading it the first time. Um, I love the first-person perspective and the humanity that it brings to Luke. He's In the Bantam era, it was sort of a Luke becomes almost godlike and infallible for a while until Mara puts him in his place in the Hand of Throne duology. Here, he's human from the get-go in a sense because we're getting into his head at this point, which is nice. Uh, I love that type of storytelling. One of my favorite um, book series that I've ever read is the Dresden Files, and another is the Joe Ledger series by Jonathan Mayberry. And both of them use first person in some form or another. In Dresden, it's first person throughout. In uh, the Joe Ledger stuff, it's first person except when you go to a villain perspective or someone else's, and then it goes to third person, so the only first person we get is the main hero. Um, mm. I love the insights that you get with that. So this felt like a great read as I was zipping through it the first time around. I like the fact that we have uh, Nakari Kellen in there, who is, I think, Mark, you said it very well when, when giving a title to our coverage of Five Days of Sith, that true diversity goes unnoticed. Here's a character who is a black female, one of the few we've seen in Star Wars, and particularly in this canon, and they don't make a big deal out of it any more than they make a big deal out of Moff Delian Moores in Lords of the Sith being a lesbian. But the character I actually is never there. even realized she was black. 
I think they say it maybe like once at the beginning, and then otherwise it's only something that people are reminded of when they check out the image from Insider, from the, the excerpt. Um, yeah, because I think that image is really the one thing that put her more in the black campaign. I mean, it, okay, it's difficult, like we've said before, you know, what's an Asian in a galaxy where there's mm-hmm. no Earth? Uh, but yeah, they, they talked about her being dark skin and dark of complexion. I mean, I, that's a range of skin tones and ethnic groups in that regard. But I think that image definitely locked her down more in, in the black uh, area. Right. I mean, so you've got this this new diversity to an extent. We've got a given being a major character, which is something you don't see very often. Um, there's a lot of things to like about this. Luke's journey of learning about the Force and what's prompting him to the idea that, I mean, in a way, there's sort of a love triangle type thing going on mentally here where you've got sort of the uh, the Oliver Queen, Felicity, uh, Palmer thing like going on from Arrow. There's the person that, he's inter- that Luke's interested in at the moment. There's the one that his heart is set on. And that is is sort of uh, causing issues to a degree or causing some doubts in the other situation. Um, all that is very good. But then on the flip side, this is the weakest of the novels we got in the new canon so far for two reasons. One, it feels like this is a book that he basically sat down and took a role-playing game campaign that he's played before and just turned it into a book. Just not as successfully as Scourge was based off of Tempest Feud, when they actually took an RPG campaign and turned it into a book. Every time you see an encounter in here, it screams role-playing game. Oh, you have a mission to go on, but wait, you need a favor from this group, but before they'll do you a favor, you've got to do them a favor. So go on to this mission and fight these deadly creatures, and now you've returned. Move on to the next step. Now you're dealing with some spies. Move on to the next step. Oh no, mm. you're heading to your destination, but you're followed by a bunch of bounty hunters. What are you going to do? Look, you've saved the day, and you've ran into a named, somewhat familiar character, but a minor character from the movies to give you a sense of connection here at the end. You know, iris out, roll credits. Very much RPG-esque. And I think my biggest problem with the book comes down to one specific question. Who is the villain? This is a book without a villain. Uh, The Empire is the antagonist, essentially. The Empire in this nebulous form. We never get a named enemy among any of the Imperials that they deal with, really, on any of the planets. And in the end, when they're being chased down by a bunch of bounty hunters, they never get much personality. They never get identities. It's really sort of a, you know, let's focus on Luke, what's going on in his head, the connection he's building to Nakari, and the rest of it sort of becomes just the backdrop of action, and we don't really get much depth to the villains. And I grant, granted, that's me being a hypocrite, because my story for Star Wars Tales, Kyle and Jan dealing with relationship things, there's Yuzhan Vong and, and Peace Brigade members there fighting um, but they don't get names. They don't get a lot of time spent on them. But that was a 14-page comic story, not in a 200-plus-page novel where you actually have time to fully develop even your bad guys. I, I can see that also as part of the problem with the style of writing. When you're writing in the first person, Luke Skywalker, like, you have to kind of go out of your way to do in-depth of the villains because, like, mm-hmm. how are they going to do it in his own head? Yeah. That's where a third person would come in handy with this one. I, you know, that that was how I felt like the Lord of the Ring journey to it. Yeah, RPG feel is definitely a good way of putting it. Uh, you know, I, I was, I, and I was enjoying that aspect. I just was kind of wishing for the big push of a big villain or something like that. Uh, you know, Jim, you were mentioning how you know the the second half kind of really ramped it up and. You know, I felt like the end just came so fast. Uh, you know, I, I knew that there was what some people had termed at one point as some controversy with Nakari's character. And I think I didn't catch that because 
I, I partially read the book. Uh, you know, when I got the early advanced view, I was I was going through the book and reading as much as I could with that. Uh, then I got the audio book and I was listening to it. And the way Nikari was read in that totally killed all romance for me. She was way too London, but not in a London sexy way. Just just it seemed like there was no emotion to the character. She liked to tease Luke and stuff like that. But beyond that. I wasn't getting anything like they were really building up towards the romance. That so, only happened when I was reading it. So it was Twilight. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> or Lucy. I would say, I mean, just on the, 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 the subject of the villains and whatnot here, just because I think that's really the last thing that I would say spoiler-free before we get into the spoiler depth from my perspective. I think I've kind of ranted a little bit already. Is, I mean, it seems like this is something really that the recent Star Wars novels for this new canon are really struggling with, which blows my mind. They're struggling with creating stories that are essential and heavily impactful. I don't think we're going to get one of those until we get Aftermath at this point. But you look at these, and it's it's bizarre. You've got a, a really well-fleshed-out villain in A New Dawn with Vidian, and then you got Tarkin, and... In the case of Tarkin, Tarkin and Vader are sort of the protagonists in a sense, and we learn a lot about Tarkin, but then the little ragtag band of rebels working against them never feel like they're heavily developed, never feel like they have a chance of ever succeeding, so there's not a lot of tension in the book. Then you've got this, where there basically are no named villains whatsoever, it's just a nebulous empire, they're fighting the system. And then Lords of the Sith finally gives us two sides that feel evenly matched, with Cham Syndulla's group and the small group of Imperials down on the surface of Ryloth with Palpatine and Vader uh, that are outnumbered but have, of course, the Force behind them and such. It just seems as though in trying to write these new stories that delve so much into the minds and the background of certain characters like Kanan or Tarkin or Luke, and to a lesser extent in Lords of the Sith into Vader and Palpatine, it's like they're losing sight of the idea that most really engaging Star Wars stories need a clear-cut hero and villain, need a protagonist and an antagonist, and that the antagonist can't be this nebulous organization. There needs to be a face to it, and you never really get a face to the enemy here. We get more depth out of these skull-borer creatures that they run into in sort of like an alien-esque type of atmosphere then we get for any Imperials or anyone working with them even tangentially in this book. And like I said, it makes it a fun read when you first read it because of getting into Luke's head. And in that sense, I love it. It has me wanting to read his Iron Druid books. They're, I'm going to be reading them as soon as I get done with some of the Dune stuff that I'm working on reading through right now. So it's not a bad book. But the lack of that clear-cut villain and so much of it being sort of in Luke's head on these RPG-style adventures make it the weakest of the four that we've got. And that's unfortunate, because this guy's skill at first person could have made for an incredible, impactful Star Wars novel that just opened up the door to all kinds of new possibilities. And instead, he slams the door shut on the one super interesting character that we get within the book, and in the process, never really gives us a sense of tension with real villains. It's, as I said, I'm torn. It's either a really good book or it's a really bad book, depending on what you're looking for in the book. And I'm looking for kind of a little bit of both. So I'm, you know, there's a tug of war going on here within my mind for this one. It's definitely worth a read. I don't think I'll ever read it again. 
Yeah, there definitely needs to be a mainstay villain. Like, I- I'm looking for a Nominor type, you know, somebody that's going to be the face of the evil that isn't necessarily the big bad in charge. You know, somebody that's got his own motives that could hose over both sides of the faction. Uh, it, you know, the, the Skullbores, though. Oh, man, I almost forgot about that. That was like... That was the coolest scene, I think, of the whole book overall. Uh, when when all that was going down, and they didn't know what it was on the on the planet that was attacking the people and stuff, and it being in first person, that really was working. I mean, I really enjoyed the journey of this story, but but the lack of the clear cut villain, I think, or or even a villain that that moves on, like I think. Now that we've got Star Wars being reboot and Legends is all off on its own, like that's kind of where I want. I want to see a new villain that comes in that's the new mainstay, the new Thrawn type character. You know, he doesn't have to be like Thrawn, but basically be somebody that's a big threat. Uh, you know, give me somebody that's going to kind of take the the mid ground so Vader doesn't have to always be that villain or it doesn't always have to be Tarkin. Um, you know, so those guys can stay at the powerhouse that they are of evil and power inside the Empire, but we can have people like the Inquisitor that can go out and that are still the face of evil, but they're somebody that you might actually have a chance of defeating. Um, or, or even have it where the villain gets away and you have to chase him down in another book. All these books are, are really feeling self-contained, which I know when it came to Legends, a lot of people were asking for that. But that's also because we had so many books that were all kind of interweaving that people were like, hey, we need to step away from that. But now we're doing that world building. It'd be nice to have at least like a few more through threads uh, besides just Vader himself. I guess what we're saying is for once – we would have asked for an Asmorgan like from Idiot's Array on Rebels, because at least there would have been a face. Albeit an ugly, creepy, lecherous face that we probably would have torn into. Jim, what do you think? I mean, does, does this lack of a clear-cut villain diminish Actually, the book? That didn't bother me all that much. Uh, the Empire's the villain. Um, pretty much they're just trying to get away from the Empire. Uh, what In general, I would say, like, I liked the book. It was okay. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't bad. I enjoyed reading it. Um, it was really quick. Um, at 270 pages, I took me uh, four to five days to read. And I don't have that much time to read. But um, in general, for, for what Mark had said before, you can feel that the story is not really useful. Like, like it doesn't have like a um, it's not that important. The, the main part of the book that's the important part is Luke's own journey within the force and how he kind of takes the next step from A New Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I'd say, yeah, it's a it's a fun read, but it's not um, it's not a, it's not a must read. Yeah, it's definitely the next step for Luke. That is the best way to describe it. I mean, that's what I kept coming back to was, okay, this is literally Luke right after A New Hope. You know, he's still got questions. He's still wondering what's going on with Ben. It answered a lot of that and put me into where Luke's at at this point. Um, And and you're right, Jim. You know, the Empire is the enemy. And, and, you know, I guess sometimes we kind of forget that, that, you know, the Empire itself with the stormtroopers and all the people, the citizens of the Empire having the ability to contact the mill net, the hollow net, rat out anybody at any time, call in some bounty hunters and stuff. That is a huge threat in and of itself. And they did use the bounty hunters really well in that regard. I was thinking about that fact about, you know, the bounty hunters have always been like this fringe group in Legends and stuff. But canon has really gone out of their way to bring the bounty hunters in time and time again. I mean, you know, when you watch the original saga, you had the fifth episode was really the bounty hunter episode when they finally come in, you know, oh, bounty hunters, we don't need their kind. 
but since then, you know, we've seen bounty hunters in the Clone Wars. We're seeing bounty hunters in the comics. Uh, you know, it makes sense to see the bounty hunters being used a lot more. And it ups the threat of not only do you have the citizens of the Empire that could be turning you over, you actually have these rogue agents that are, you know, hired guns that anybody could hire hunting you down. And to see that aspect of how that that was working and stuff was was interesting in and of itself. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you guys. I don't think this one's an essential read. Um, but I, I'm kind of disagreeing with Nate and just at this moment, I'm only about six or seven chapters in on Lords of the Sith, but that one's feeling like it might shape up to be my first essential read. Uh, but I'm noticing though, that I'm determining a difference between a essential read and a critical read. Uh, and I don't think anything so far has been a critical read. Uh, but I do think so far Sith Lord, or Lords of the Sith is shaping up to be something essential to the new canon. Whereas this one felt like it might've been essential to the story of Luke. But we really won't know that until we get the next book to see how he's progressed from noodle bending. Well, I think the next step in Luke's progression is the Star Wars ongoing comics. And that's actually a good place to lead into when this takes place. There has been some confusion as to when this takes place, because it's shortly after A New Hope, versus the Marvel stuff that's coming out. Um, they were able to finally confirm the order here. What you've got is, of course, A New Hope. Then the Princess Leia comic happens because it's picking up pretty much right after the celebration ceremony, actually during the celebration ceremony, um, and then moving forward from there. Then comes this. Then comes Star Wars, just the regular named Star Wars series from Marvel. And that one is interweaving with what we get with Darth Vader. And then, of course, the Kanan series is back during the Clone Wars and working its way up to Rebels and all that. So if you are reading the Marvel stuff outside of Leia her series, this book actually comes before the Marvel stuff. The clues that you get that tell you that is the fact that in this book, Luke is talking about, you know, how long it's been since, you know, hearing Ben's voice at the Battle of Yavin, and was it a fluke? Was he even possibly hearing things? Did he just imagine it? Blah, blah, blah. Whereas in the comics, that's already sort of been dealt with as something that's happened to him, uh, or is happening to him again. So that's where the at least the order of these things seems to have panned out according to, you know, the powers that be saying so. Which begs the question, I guess, here of how soon after the events of A New Hope it is. I don't think they've pinned down when, in terms of how many weeks or how many months after any of this stuff is taking place, so much as they're just sort of putting them out there saying it's between A New Hope and Empire, and here's the order to read them in. Now, based on one line within the book, I'd, I would say it has to be within, like, six months to one year um, after... I wouldn't put it sooner than six months. And I guess the other context we should give here is um, let's not forget that when this book was initially being written, it was not being written as part of a new canon. It was being written as the mm -hmm. third book in Empire and Rebellion, right? The series that had its name on Razor's Edge, had its name taken off of the cover of Honor Among Thieves, but still left in the inside of Honor Among Thieves. And then this was meant to be the third. And when the big canon change happened, essentially... Empire and Rebellion had been written off as a series anyway, or as a quasi-series anyway, and this book was reworked a little bit from what we understand, not in a big way, to become what we get here. So it's the second first-person book that we've seen, not counting short stories and RPG stories and stuff like that. It's the first first-person story set within the new canon, and it's also the only one that we know of that instead of just being something that was written when they weren't sure it was going to be a new canon, like, say, A New Dawn, 
where it just happened to be that the authors weren't told yet. This is the first one we've run into that was actually repurposed from one continuity to the other, which may explain why, to a degree, it doesn't have a lot of big, you know, explosive, essential impact, because none of the stuff that we got with Empire and Rebellion had that kind of impact. They were designed to be things that a new reader could read without needing any kind of backstory. So that may, at least to a degree, explain some of the, the shortcomings of this compared to what I think we would have expected someone with the pedigree of Hearn with Iron Druid to be able to do with a Star Wars book, that maybe we're perhaps expecting too much of, not Hearn, but expecting too much of a book that was meant to be Empire and Rebellion. See, and I worry about how they make it so continuity-free in that regard. I mean, yeah, right now we're doing a world-building and stuff, but there's that there's no through line to from one book to the next. There's no villain getting away. I mean, Luke is pretty much it, but if they don't, in the next Luke book, establish anything back to this, they're all going to feel really disconnected. And at this point, when you're building a new canon, that's the thing that I think that they need to be doing is that connective tissue. I mean, you know, they go out of their way to bring Lando into Rebels so we can have that tie. You know, you got Tarkin from the Clone Wars and tying into A New Hope. Uh, but until they start doing that with the books, I just feel like each one of these could, in a theory, be a throwaway story. And that's something that's worrisome. It's like I, I loved when the New Jedi Order was able to take and, and bring elements from old Bantam books and these characters back again and then reutilize them in new ways. I mean... You know, Nakari's dad would be something like maybe down the road we see Luke go back to her dad and, and ask for a favor or something. That would be something cool that I would like to see them do. And it would be something that they could do subtly in another book that doesn't really tie them together. But it still gives you a sense that these characters weren't just one and done, just used for this one story and we've moved on. I, and I think that was my problem with A New Dawn was, was the only characters in that were the characters from Rebels. And beyond that, everyone else had nothing to do with anything but that specific story. So what you're saying is You gotta get your books connected The writing's on the wall If continuity's neglected Stumble, you might fall Stumble, you might fall Says the 90s music listener And some people out there are like Hackers, go watch Hackers, you'll know. Wow, that was in Hackers? That was in Hackers, oh, my man. man. Oh, that's where I got that on my soundtrack. I'm like, dude, I love this soundtrack. Wow. Now, and there's a movie I haven't thought about in 20 years. <laughs> Amen mm -hmm. to that. <laughs> I know, people were like, Angelina Jolie's in this? What? <laughs> that's the only thing I remember about it. Her and Johnny when they first got married. Analyze their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Consider that your spoiler warnings, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. And we do mean spoilers for Heir to the Jedi, not for hackers. Yeah, for clarification's sake. But those are um, in-game as well. So... Again, this is an odd one. Um, the general gist that you get, broadly speaking, is that there's this character named Drusil. And Drusil is a given. 
and has all kinds of extreme mathematical capabilities and is able to decipher things and recognize patterns and such that could be of huge help to the rebellion because right now the rebels have evacuated Yavin 4 which happens almost immediately now thanks to the Princess Leia comics not six months after or anything and they really need to get her on their side they need to get her family into safety and get her into safety from where she's being watched by Imperial Minders. And if they can pull that off, she has agreed to help them. And so Luke gets chosen to take on this mission. And he's going to use a ship called the Desert Jewel. And the Desert Jewel is owned by Nakari Kellen, this woman who is the daughter of the head of Kellen Biolabs, Fayette Kellen, who basically is sending out teams to look for you know exotic oddities in terms of biology so that he can use new discoveries to create new medicines, new other products, you know, just kind of to, to benefit society and the company's bottom line with new developments from nature. And Luke and Nakari essentially go on a mission briefly to discover what happened on a Fex, a place called Fex, uh, to a research team that was sent there that wound up being killed by what are called skull boars, these bird-like things that are cloaked, more or less, natural cloaking, that land on you, stick their snout against your head, drill into it, and fuck out your brains. Um, you know, all they want to do is eat your brains. They're not unreasonable. No one wants to eat your eyes, to make another song reference here. Um, I, I wouldn't call them bird-like. I'm thinking more like a rodent-like hanging up out in the trees. I always pictured, I always pictured them as birds for some reason. Well, they yeah, said they couldn't go underneath the canopies. Um, so, like, if they went from ship to ship, they were okay because they weren't underneath any of the, the plant life. Ah, oh, that's true. That's true. So, so the, the scoreboard creatures, we'll say, um, once they manage to pull that off, they get the okay to get, some, to get some more resources, and they go on the mission to save Drusil. We see, essentially, the chase of trying to get her out and, and get off of the planet, etc., etc., until finally going to try to meet with other rebels, avoiding Imperial detection, avoiding Imperial pursuit, run into a bunch of bounty hunters and have to uh, basically make their way through them to be able to get to the other rebels and Drusil's family. And along the way, in the final battle where grenades and such are being lobbed left and right, some grenades managed, or thermal detonators, managed to kill Nakari, and it essentially is bringing down this huge wave of grief onto Luke that he is sort of had to try to push aside to keep going with his duties since the Battle of Yavin, very much like the way that they played on Leia and the grief finally catching up to her in Brian Wood's Star Wars Volume 2, only this time it's consistent because it's the only time I've really seen Luke have to deal with it and such. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fairly pat little story, but it's a it's sort of a, you know, each act is almost like a different role-playing adventure against generic villains or creatures, but the yeah. through line is the connection between Luke and Nakari and the fact that they are it's some of the most witty, I think, and human banter between two people attracted to each other that we've gotten in Star Wars probably since The Empire Strikes Back. He really knocks it out of the park with the human interaction, but the broader story itself is you know, fairly generic, I think. See, in so, that one, I, I go back and forth because when I was reading it, yeah. I agree with you on the romance between Nakari and Luke, but when I heard it being read to me on the audiobook, yeah, you know, I like Mark Thompson stuff, but he gave her this well pilot kind of 
like so snooty and uptight. I really had a hard time hearing any kind of romance in the way he was reading it. But I, I recognize that the words being used and stuff, like if I used a different accent and put on like more of a, a sultry smoky voice to it. Yeah. It was some hardcore flirting, but Mark Thompson kind of by using the accent he did kind of ruined a lot of that for me. Uh, so I, I like, I, I got the most of the book in audio was the middle part. So that part for me is like all the romance was dead by the time I got to the end of the book. I was kind of like, okay, so Nakari serving Luke's grief purpose, which I thought that was great when that moment happened and, and, and he was feeling, you know, not just, uh, Ben, the loss of Ben, but also aunt, uh, Baru and uncle Owen and, and just his life on Tatooine and all that stuff. I liked how that worked for Luke's character. That was a really cool moment. Uh, the skull borers was a very creepy uh, part, you know, and Nathan, you know how you mentioned it was like a bunch of little RPGs. That's definitely how I felt. And I was liking how that was working. I think my biggest issue overall was, was what we were in the spoiler free part talking about being their lack of a villain. And it wasn't so much the lack of the villain, but for me, I think it's like in chapter two, they mentioned that Luke is the rebellion's best option to secure a line on arms. And I'm like, really Luke, Luke's your best option. Like, of all yeah. the people you have, Luke's it, huh? Okay. They also mentioned the the Luke weapons expert. I'm like, when the hell did he become a weapons expert? <laughs> yes, yes. So, so that was my hard swallow. Like, and then the whole given with their numbers thing, like. They almost made the given so smart that it's like, we need to wipe this race out before the Empire finds a way to hook them up to a computer a la Bad Batch, uh, and we're all hosed. Because, yeah, the, the numbering aspect was, like, it was over my head, so so maybe that was just it. You know, I'm, I'm an idiot in that regard. So it went over my head completely. But there were some really cool moments in the beginning, uh, that lead-up part where you got to do something for me kind of stuff. When Luke goes to Rodia, and uh, he meets the one Rodian and gets... Uh, the, the Rodian's uncle's lightsaber and stuff. There were moments of that that really uh, kind of chimed in and made me feel like it was I Jedi being reborn and retooled in some sense. Like when Koran went and he met with uh, Elagos and, and met Elagos's uncle and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I just, I love the way that that worked. And when Luke was going to sit there and he was taking the lightsaber apart and stuff, he was like being careful. And, and, and the fact that he, you know, knew that this was a technology that he could mess with and he ended up breaking it. I was just like, Oh, so glad you didn't do that with yours, buddy. Did you uh, catch what the color of that lightsaber was? No, uh, it, it had a, a, it was a purple. Was it, it was, was it the blade? Lightsaber. Yeah. Oh, see, no, I missed that. That's slick too. And I, I like the fact that it had the special coating on it and stuff like that. There were a lot of really cool touches of detail, uh, but there was one that really got me. And, and I know this is a nitpick, but, I get back to it and I'm like, really seriously, bathroom? You you have baths on ships? You're gonna call it a bathroom over even a restroom? Like I get you're stepping away from refresher because that's just too Star Wars for Star Wars now, but bathroom, bathtub, bathroom, you're gonna put a bathtub on a ship? Like, oh, that just sounds like an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> Isn't that you know, you need something to wash yourself though on a ship if you're gonna be on it a lot. I mean, surely the Millennium Falcon has a bathroom on it, otherwise it Chewie himself would Stink to high heaven, wouldn't he? A sponge room or something. Has I the don't pet know. Spa. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, he's got a little groomer, like a little droid groomer back there, you know, picking off the fleas and whatnot. Um, I will say, you mentioned the whole thing about the given and the math, and that actually was a really intriguing angle. I enjoyed the way that, that the character was able to look at things and calculate, and we had a reason why her calculations would work out so well. This wasn't like Thrawn in the, in the later days. Thrawn early. With Zahn in the original Thrawn trilogy, he was someone who would use 
characteristics from art and whatnot and the nature of a species to try to predict their movements and did pretty well. But by the time you get to Zahn writing Choices of One, for instance, Thawne is basically a god and can predict and manipulate everything with perfect precision down to the nth degree. And it's kind of ridiculous because you don't really ever get a sense of how he's able to pull this off. In this case, we have these mathematical equations and these models that Drusel's able to use to try to make that happen. And we get some great math humor in it that probably the single funniest, nerdiest joke that I've seen in a Star Wars book ever comes on page 189. Uh, they're talking... I foiled your plan? Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> excellent. Knock however you wish and then say quantity P plus L times the quantity A plus N equals PA plus PN plus LA plus LN. Like, okay, that's a little long for a passphrase, but we'll do that. Wait, don't you get it? Get what? I foiled your plan! Oldest joke in the galaxy and it's completely wasted on humans. <sighs> I miss my husband. It's awesome! I I laughed out loud at that part. That, the, I'm, the, I'm the, still... the math humor was surprisingly well done. Okay, and I'm still lost. It's the old, um, if you have two quantities where it's something plus something else times something plus something else, and they're there as the two quantities beside each other, the way that you do it is you take the two first, first variables times each other, plus uh, O, the outside variable, so the first and the last times each other. I means inside, L means last. So foiling means take oh. the different pattern out of what you're seeing there and put them together and that's how that equation winds up working instead of having to do it um in a more long-handed sort of way so foiling is is what they call that shortcut in math okay. um i like that it's, i thought that was like pretty that order of operations then kind okay. of yeah this is it's pretty creative you know I, and you can tell you know that that is such a good joke in here that Hearn probably came up with it years ago and was like i'm going to use it someday i promise <laughs> and now he's like Yes! It's a math character! That's the one thing about Hearn's ability to write it and the fact that uh, Thompson used the voice he did for that character. He used a voice kind of like this, and the way she sounded just was very smart and very teacher-like, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Good God, that's what I sound like if I'm a teacher? Only if you're crunching a lot of numbers. <laughs> Part of my dissertation was on chaos theory. Do I sound like that? <laughs> Not yet, but <laughs> when you when you get old enough that you look like a skull, like a given, perhaps, perhaps. Okay, things to look forward to. What do you guys think of Luke's relationship with the Force as seen here? I found myself, and I, and I had to make the joke uh, on the, the Timeline Golds page, that it was shocking to me that, you know, what was the first thing Luke was able to use the Force to move with his mind? Well, you could have knocked me over with a wet one, because it was a noodle. Um, I guess to an extent... There was this misconception, this misconception that doesn't really make a lot of sense in fandom because some people were talking about this as it was like a shocking thing that somehow, how is Luke supposed to learn how to do these things? He doesn't have a teacher between A New Hope and Empire. It's only once Yoda starts teaching him that he gets these abilities. And I'm thinking, but he uses the Force to grab his lightsaber in the Wampa Cave in Empire. So he must have at least some skills already that he must have developed on his own. And we get to actually see it happening here and the thought process that goes into how to open himself up to it and how to reach out to it in a way that we usually don't get because we're usually not seeing it uh, as a first-person part of storytelling. Um, so it, to me, I feel like it's a, it's a good thing to see in the book, and it works well as far as a stepping stone for Luke between the two films. But it was stuff that it was more mundane than you would expect. It wasn't necessarily like Kanan 
having to reveal his powers at a moment to save the day. It was Luke. He, practice makes perfect. He was just trying and trying, and finally it worked. I found it very human, but I know there were some people who said that it was too mundane and should have been more bombastic when Luke finally figured out how to do it. What'd you guys think? Um, actually, what I really enjoyed was the connection with uh, Empire Strikes Back and Yoda's teachings, how they kind of worked that in. And um, on page 40, he begins, Before I began, I gave myself permission to fail. It was to be my first try, after all, and there was no use in getting upset or even angry at myself if I didn't succeed right away. I thought that was really interesting, because right there, you, you're going exactly counter to what Yoda would say. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he, t he tied that in really well, I felt. But like overall, it, it, it fits in exactly where I would picture Luke at this time. You know, you're, they used to always tell me, do or do not, there is no try. What does that even mean? You know, I honestly don't know. Yoda used to say it a lot. Yeah, I, I laughed <laughs> at that line, too. <laughs> yeah, I like the way that Drusel actually had a way of teaching Luke a lot of stuff by the way she would come at his problems. She would make him think about it in a new direction. In in that regard, it felt very organic to Luke as a character, you know, the way he stumbled across things. So it being a wet noodle that he started with and stuff. And the fact that even as it was going along, like he was questioning if Nakari was messing with him at times and stuff. I thought that worked out really well as well. Because she was messing with him at times. Truly, she was. I mean, there was I liked the aspect of her and her dad, like her, her dad would be the pilot. You know, and that kind of stuff. And she was playing with it and she was messing with Luke in that regard. There was a lot of stuff there with Nikari that I was enjoying. I mean, like the fact that Nikari uses some common ground between Vader and Luke, that was a very creepy little chapter in and of itself. Uh, you know, and she she mentions, I think it was in chapter 17, where she points out that the rebellion, their successes lead to Vader getting the blame in the scenarios with Sidious and stuff. And like how she almost felt bad for Vader. I'm like, oh, my God, I had never even thought of it like that. Uh, there were so many angles in that regard where like even Luke was wondering like what it would be like if he were to train under Vader because Vader's like the last force user around still. Uh, little things like that that I thought were really cool that that came about through his talks with Nakari. And the characterizations are so well done. Like I said, so human. I, I think that is the key phrase I would use. If someone were asking for one word to describe Heir to the Jedi, it would be human, which is an odd thing to say in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I mean, for instance, even Nakari's father, who you mentioned, is really well fleshed out for what little we see of him. The villains sure aren't. There barely are any. But, I mean, behold, minions! I mean, this guy is crazy eccentric, and yet you totally buy into the character. I mean, he cr he cracks me up half the time when he's on the page just because of the way that he speaks. And this guy, mm -hmm. you, you kind of get the sense that he's brilliant, but like many geniuses, he's kind of got an issue going on in his head. Um, just a tad and, eccentric. A tad. Yeah. And it plays well to his daughter because, like, there's that scene in Chapter 17 where they're going up against the pirates. It's just, Unidentified hole. Shut it! <laughs> and I love the way... That, again, they, they dig into um, the characters. Um, for instance, okay, and if you'll indulge me a little bit of, uh, of dialogue here. Okay? Um, when, when Luke and Nakari are talking at one point, he says, uh, I guess this is a roundabout compliment, but I'm going for originality. She says, all right, dazzle me. Well, I don't feel the crushing weight of your expectations. I mean, you had them. You just shared them with me. But I never would have known unless you'd said something. And believe me, that's refreshing. Important. And she asks, important how? 
Ever since the Battle of Yavin, I feel sometimes that people expect me to top it and wonder why I haven't yet. What I feel from you is encouragement to top it, which is very different and rare. She says, whoa, I'm not encouraging you to top the Death Star thing. I know, that probably didn't come out right. Let me try again. The secret about the Battle of Yavin was that I succeeded because of the Force. So to me, topping what I did there doesn't mean a bigger explosion or killing more stormtroopers. It means taking another step along the path to becoming a Jedi. And I've made more progress in the Force since I met you than any other time after I lost Ben. I actually have hope that I can learn to use it now, and it's because of your encouragement. So you see, you're... you're good for me. And she says, uh, hmm, that was some pretty complex sugar, but you wrapped it and put in a neat little bow at the end. That wasn't bad, Luke. Full points. And you get, it's just this great opening up of the character, getting inside his thoughts in a way that we really never did, at least not on a consistent basis, with the Legends continuity. And you feel between the two of them that it's not this heavy-handed, well, here's a female character, here's Luke who's a male character, we're just going to throw them together and they will instantly hit it off and we will have a romantic interlude between them, very much like, say, Luke and Callista to an extent got rushed into connecting together, or Padme and Anakin. Um, instead, they're building this with the banter and the opening themselves up to each other to the point where you can really see how Luke despite his feelings for Leia, is able to recognize that that's unlikely to happen. And instead of spending all his time pining for her and being the petulant little Sith, no, not Sith, because that means something else in Star Wars, I'll just have to say it, Mark will have to bleep it, instead of being the petulant little <laughs> that he is in Brian Wood's Star Wars Volume 2, he here is handling it in a very human way. There's someone he wants to be with, he can't be with, he's not going to shut himself off to other people, and there will be other people that get his attention and that he comes to really enjoy being around and being with. Um, sort of this lack of a myopic view that somehow the Legends authors got in their heads that if it wasn't Leia, that at least during this era, Luke couldn't have eyes for anyone else. And I don't know about you, but I can remember being a 19-year-old like Luke he is here, 19 or 20, and if there was someone you wanted to be with and you couldn't be with them, that did not stop you from trying to date other people, otherwise you would have been in a rut. I mean, that's freaking, you know, that's, what, high school relationships in a nutshell, adolescent relationships in a nutshell, that there's all kinds of opportunities there, and you cannot lock yourself into a single mindset to a single person when you are at that age, which is funny me saying that, because, of course, my wife and I met when she was 19, so I probably just dug myself a giant hole. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I can see that the best thing about their relationship is it feels natural. Like this a three year period between the two movies. Yeah, Luke's gonna uh, Luke's gonna look around, especially if um, Han seems to be winning that battle. Yeah, no doubt. You know, another thing I, I just had discovered, it was in chapter 18, and I think that's where fandom discovered that she must be black. Uh, they mentioned Akari having curly hair. So brown skin, curly hair, she must be black. I, I, I don't know where the fandom, you know, when these books start getting into reviewers' hands and stuff, where we come up with the things we do. I mean, you know, I remember the big to-do about, you know, Mothmores being lesbian and Nakari being black and the controversy about her death at the end. 
And then when I got to it, I'm like, okay, well, she's barely even described as being any skin tone or color. So I, you know, so the only thing I could put together was it's got to be the reference to curly hair. Uh, and then, like I said, because I was having Mark Thompson read Nakari in a way that didn't sound that romantic, when I got to her death, it was like it served the biggest purpose of unlocking Luke's grief. So I didn't see what the big controversy was there. Or am I missing something? Did you guys see something that I missed in that? Or do you guys think the controversy might have been the wrong word used? I think the controversy was just the idea that they built up this character that was becoming so well-loved by the readers of this book and then kill her off in such a kind of blink-and-you'll-miss-it sort of way. I mean, it really felt like you were watching a horror movie, right? Where you start with this group of characters and just out of nowhere, you know, no one is safe. And boom, here goes a character who's dead. Um, ironically, it's even a black character, and you know, you know, who is it that usually dies first in many 1980s horror movies? It's the black character, or it's the, it's the girl, um, or it's the jock, I guess. But I think that this, the, the race thing wasn't really, as I said, it, it's, it should go really in many ways unnoticed here. They're making a conscious effort, it seems, to make the galaxy more reflective of society today, just like most stories try to reflect the society in which they're written. Um, we finally have characters other than Lando that are black, other than Lando and Mace. Um, I think what got me with her character, and maybe like the character so much, is that she's able to do something that most characters weren't able to do in the Legends continuity, and that is to be an equal in some respects to Luke. It was very hard, as you get into the post-Return of the Jedi era in Legends, to ever really have someone who seems equal enough to Luke to be able to be in a relationship with him. Callista sort of filled that bill at one point. Mara eventually does, because of her background and her force strength and whatnot. But there's all kinds of instances where he runs into characters like Gariel Captison, who you would have expected to be a good love interest for him. But even then, they're so different, he is so prominent, and his abilities are so different than anyone else around him that it always seemed like it was a barrier between him and anyone else. Um, the closest he ever had outside of, I'd say, Mara in the Legends continuity to someone who would have been somewhat of an equal to be able to be with was Shira Bree, who turned out to become Lumaya back in the Marvel comics, where they were both pilots, um, they were both experiencing some of the same battles and the same fatigues and whatnot, um, the, diff the difference being the fact that she, in her case, was an Imperial spy at the time. Here, this is Luke before he becomes the Jedi Grand Master. This is Luke because he comes before he becomes fully a Jedi. And it allows there to be him with all these skills, but just kind of still a kid. And then Nakari, with her own skills, but still kind of a kid in some respects, being able to interact on an equal level that Luke rarely got a chance to do. And that, it, it's, it's thrilling to see because even... In the stories taking place around this era in Legends, so many of them were written after we already had, had these post-Return of the Jedi stories that it seemed like they never quite got that, yeah, there was a period where Luke was just a guy trying to find his way like any mm -hmm. other 19-year-old at the time. And it's refreshing. And he does, Hearn does a very good job of that. His interpersonal relation stuff is outstanding. Um, it's... The conflict with the Empire that, that's lackluster here. So what you're saying is this is before Luke started to fall in love with women who wanted to kill him. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. So did, 
in regards to Nakari, um, like I said before, I never even realized that she was black through the whole story. It didn't make one difference to me. But you're saying um, there's a big shock over that she was killed at the end. Did Was that a shock to anybody? Because I would say about when sort, shortly after she was introduced, I kind of figured she was going to die. Um, and then it, it pretty much flat out says it on uh, the end of chapter 17. It says, I never told Nakari, but and so on. And that kind of pretty much sealed the deal. Yeah, she's definitely dead by the end of this book. See, I yeah, that I think was my thing, too, was I didn't see her living. Um, You know, Nathan, you mentioned her being equal. I kind of saw her even more advanced than Luke. Uh, You know, her privileges and stuff through life and put her in a higher, I don't know, uh, uh, less ignorant ring of social society. Uh, She was down on a lot more things that Luke was still struggling to kind of catch up to from being a farm boy on Tatooine. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I kind of hope her dad shows up somewhere again because I feel like her family really took the shaft here. You know, they, they lost the Desert Jewel. He lost his daughter. He lost the uh, the advantage he had with the skull bores on that planet. I mean, like this guy could become a, a good, uh, you know, secondary villain for the Empire if he wants to use that rage down the road. Or he could be a nice little uh, returning helpful character, a supporting cast member uh, down the road. Uh, another really weird thing, though, that, that popped up in this. I. I don't know. I, I pick up on little stupid things apparently, but the garlic and peanuts, uh, I was just like, Oh, garlic and peanuts made it into star Wars. Like, okay. Like, I, I don't know. Like, bathroom, garlic, peanuts. Like we're not even trying anymore. Let's throw some hamburgers and French fries in next. You know, I want Han eating a hamburger with some chewy fries or something like that. They'll get chewy their fries. <laughs> They'll get oh, their geez. calf now from a place called Starbucks run by uh Bogotan, <laughs> right? Characters, Bogotan. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, on the whole issue of whether or not she was going to die there, I'm of two minds about it because when she first appeared, my thought was, Oh, here we go. Another throwaway character. We're never going to see again. Just like Scarlet Hark. I think that was her name back in honor among thieves, but it is a new continuity. This is one of the first novels in it. Maybe they actually are going to seed in some new characters that we're going to see in upcoming books. And the extent to which she was given great characterization here in the connection to Luke I was hoping we would see her more. I was hoping this was creating this relationship that would be able to carry forward, whether into the comics or into other books. So I was—I wouldn't say I was 50-50 on it. I think I was leaning towards, yeah, she's probably going to die, but I was fervently hoping that she wouldn't because of how well Hearn develops her here. It's, it's unusual to see this much time spent on such great characterization if the character's not going to ever be used again, if a character's a throwaway character for one book, you can usually tell by the efforts made to give them character. Like, it seems like they're always being skimped on just a little bit. And then in the end, you're like, oh, that was why. But it didn't really feel like it this time. And I think that's part of why people were so bothered by the death and why it was so controversial, because she had been built up so much. So many people were hoping to see her continue into a future book. And when she dies, it's almost like it's off screen, so to speak, because it's like Luke is seeing what's happening and you see the explosives go toward her position, the explosion, and then you get a note on how he feels, what he's sensing in the force and her absence. But she doesn't die, so to speak, right in front of us. And it is very, very abrupt. Like you would expect her to get captured by the Empire, um, uh, killed by 
Imperial stormtroopers in this huge confrontation. Instead, it's this world where they're almost at the end of their mission. It's these generic bounty hunters coming after them. They get no name and nothing other than supposed motivations that we get. And boom, she's dead and she's gone. I think that's what it was that caused people to be like, oh, are you kidding? Um, and I'm not sure if that's a fair critique to say that because she died the way that she did, it should be controversial. I don't think controversial is the right term to use for it. I think it was just that a lot of people were shocked and wanted to see her continue on. So they slapped the label controversial on it when really what they're meaning to say is disappointment. Not disappointing as this book was a disappointment because she died, so much as it was disappointing that the character couldn't continue onward. Like nothing on her and so much as, damn, we really wanted to see this character. It's like you know, any TV show you watch, and at some point one of the actors decides to move on to another project, they have to kill off the character or something. So, Grey's Anatomy! Grey's Anatomy! I was thinking Walking Dead, but okay. Um, but Not Game of Thrones, where the characters are killed off without their Yeah, but, but <laughs> Game of Thrones... See, I, would, I love Game of Thrones, but it bothers me that, that that jerk, Martin, spoiled the entire TV show by writing those books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but no, I mean, that's kind of the... The thing here, people, and to Hearn's credit, for that to be the big controversy, he connected with people. The readers connected with this character in a way that we usually didn't. I mean, I haven't seen so much backlash to a character dying as a minor character mm. in years with Star Wars. I mean, in some circles, particularly among uh, many of the female fan groups um, who talked a lot about how it was great to have this new strong female character and wanted to see her continue as sort of that equal and opposite, no pun intended with my story, to Luke. Um, the fact that it was a woman who had to die that way, you would think that it was Chewie dying all over again. And I got to say, the, from an emotional impact standpoint, given that we already kind of knew that Chewie was dying in Vector Prime, it was spoiled pretty early that someone was going to die and he winds up, and it winds up being Chewie. I almost think the emotional impact on me as a reader was equal here with Nakari dying to Chewie. Because in both cases, it was like, wow, I can't believe that just happened. Um, in Chewie's case, blunted by the fact that I knew it was coming. In her case, that I didn't, which amped it up a little more than for most throwaway, throwaway characters. What about you, Jim? Any uh, controversy that you saw? Um, Honestly, I didn't hear much about this book. Um from the fan community. I don't know if I was just shielding myself since I hadn't read it yet or, uh, yeah, I, I didn't hear anything. So nothing uh, reading the book. It's kind of, yeah, that's pretty good. It didn't really like mark my radar for, uh, for anything. Yeah. I, I kind of, I was in Nathan's boat, had a feeling she was going to die going in. And, and Jim, like you said, you noticed what the, the should have told her feelings. I think for me, once she died, like I liked how it served for him to feel his grief for Ben and all them that worked really well. Uh, the part I had problem with was how Kevin Hearn used to describe the force when it happened. Um, let's see, it was a blow to the gut realizing what that sudden absence meant. I hadn't seen it happen with my eyes, but I'd felt Nakari's life snuffed out through the force and into that void where she had shown anger rushed in 
anger and a cold sense of raw power and invincibility. With clarity I never felt before, I knew precisely where the Aquilish had moved, and the Transocean too. The latter had decided to go after the Aquilish before coming after us, thinking it was best to eliminate the guy with the grenade launcher before tackling the people with the blasters. I found myself agreeing with him. Eliminate the Aqualish. I took a step to join in the hunt, but stopped, breathing heavily, unaccountably sweating, even though I felt so cold inside and the power of the force roiled within me. Throughout this, the next couple paragraphs, he keeps talking about Luke having this cold sensation, and I, I don't know why I'm having a big issue with it, but I'm just like, I, to me, it should be hot. He should be having anger, hot, you know, emotions. He hasn't killed anyone yet. Usually the cold emotions come after the force user that's using the dark side kills someone. Then the cold creeps in. You know, the, the constant, you know, they're using the dark side to keep themselves warm kind of angle that, that I believe uh, Drew Carpishian played up. Uh, so I really had a hard time with the whole Luke getting cold and feeling sick all of a sudden. Like, being sick, I could get because Legends has always played around with, you know, they would get into a dark side area and stuff like that. They immediately feel a little sick. They get a little angry. But anger and 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 in this case you know you just saw someone you care about being picked off cold emotions are not what i generally think of especially in terms of the force or in terms of myself i always think of anger as being hot not cold so that for me was like something i really i was sitting there really kind of picking at that in my mind uh with i felt that that should have been reversed or or you know after he killed one of the guys maybe then he felt cold but the jumping right into it being cold really kind of set me back for going is that right shouldn't that be hot well, if um this this may be a spoiler for uh the the Rebel season premiere, um, that, did you see that, Mark? Unfortunately, uh, I was only able to catch the trailer. I was meeting Mark Hamill when the premiere itself was going down. Oh, um, Ezra mentions when he feels Vader that he feels cold, um, and that's something that we get with. I mean, Empire talks about uh the not, not the Empire, but Empire Strikes Back talks about how the dark side feels cold to Luke. I think. I'm okay with the way they described it. I think it's that dividing line between the force versus emotions. That mm-hmm. the the anger itself is like the blood boiling, so to speak. You you feel hot and that sort yeah. of thing. But the actual touch of the dark side is cold, uh, and that it is something that would cause someone who's never felt it before to feel ill to themselves. So that really that by itself didn't get me. The only point at which the force use kind of got me, and I think it was more just making me chuckle and see some irony than it was uh, having a problem with it, is the very end where Luke is using the Force to lift the noodles and eat the noodles. So he's he's basically playing with his food with the Force. And it reminded me, did it remind anybody else of Attack of the Clones, where mm-hmm. Anakin's slicing up the like if Obi-Wan saw me doing this, he'd be very grumpy. <laughs> I just, I couldn't yeah, help I but see that same. and think, yeah, yeah, uh, Obi-Wan would be grumpy with you too, Luke. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think of that, but now I do. You know, another character that, that we haven't really talked about that I think kind of got the shaft was uh, Tessin. Uh, I believe he was one of the Rodian helpers. Rodia had, had quite a bit of stuff going on, and I, I really hope that they'll come back to it because the way the base they had set up, uh, it really worked for the Rebellion. So I'm hoping that's a seed of some form of, or some fashion because Tessin himself, you know, he, he started helping them and he was reluctant to do so. And the next thing you know, bam, his head blows off right in front of Luke. And when that scene happened, like that, that was a pretty fun scene. Like, I don't know, some about people dying, you know, viciously. I, I really get a kick out of that in my books. 
Uh, maybe I'm a dark for dark kind of guy. I don't know. But yeah, him, him uh, helping them out and then dying over it. It was just something about that scene was like, man, that's really going to make people want to help Luke down the road. You know, like I kind of hope that something along that line kind of shows back up where like people are like, remember that? Like, hey, aren't you that Skywalker guy that was helping Tessin and got him killed by the Empire? That'd be a great way to open into the idea of him sort of pulling what we see again, kind of with you know Oliver Queen at, at different points on Arrow or uh, uh, or Ryan Hardy on the following. So you just even with Hulu Plus and no cable now, we're still watching everything. Um, in that there could come a point where Luke sees the people that try to help him because that's what Biggs was doing. That's what Obi Wan was doing. They were there to protect him. Biggs, you know, trying to block Vader in the trench. Ben trying to buy them time to escape and whatnot on the Death Star, that constantly there are people around him, helping him, protecting him, who die. That at some point, Luke could sort of pull back into his shell and for a while there, not want to let anybody help him. It Kind of that same aversion to forming connections to people because he will lose them that we see with Ezra in Season 1 of Rebels from having lost his parents. That would be an interesting angle to take with Luke, and they're totally free to do that because we just don't have that type of pre-existing continuity built between A New Hope and Empire now. We've got some Marvel comics, we've got this, and beyond that, it is absolutely fair game. Um, I don't think it's something that they will probably do, or if they do, that it will last more than, say, one book or one arc of a comic series. But they've, they've set Luke up for some interesting emotional beats if they were to choose to go that direction, thanks to... This just piling on the body count of those who not only was he close to, but who died essentially in some form or another to protect him and his mission. So kind of along with that is I felt um, there's a lot of dropped storylines within the book. And I'm wondering if they maybe they'll come back later, like the Rodian's lightsaber. He takes apart the Rodian's lightsaber and that's the last time it was ever mentioned, I believe. Um, the skull borers. I have I have I wrote down a note. Do these ever come back? Like what is with the skull borers? The planet comes back mentioned, but the skull borers, uh, skull borers never actually have any impact in the remaining part of the story. I was hoping at some point during the end um, they would uh, they would appear in some variety or fashion. Those I've got a feeling were probably one offs. I don't expect the skull borers to come back. The lightsaber. I like. The, the way it's described, it talks about how the lightsaber works and gives us the canonical version of the inner workings of the blades and how the lenses work and where the crystal goes in and how, you know, how does the battery the, or the power pack work relative to these others and talks about how there's a mechanical component to it, but to get it just right, that's where the force comes in and that the force has a role to play in it. Um, Very Clone Wars-ish. Yes. Yeah. I, would, I would argue, though, that... That was in there specifically to set up Luke's ability to build his own lightsaber between Empire and Jedi, uh -huh. and that's it. I don't necessarily see that coming back as a plot point, and I would almost be afraid to see it coming back unless they did something to take it beyond what we see here, because if not, you know, say Luke finds a lightsaber in the Marvel comics and studies it to figure out how to build a lightsaber, we'd be getting into that, who stole the Death Star plans, how did Leia deal with her grief, uh, et cetera, et cetera retelling of the same plot points because oh everybody wants to tie into the movies the same way and nobody's willing to tell them no somebody's already did that um but it, it was it was a great sequence i think that's the really that's the one thing about the entire section on rhodia that i even think of as noteworthy like i think of the mm -hmm. section on rhodia and i almost forget it entirely i mean i pretty much 
left it out when talking about the basics of what happens in the story earlier. Um, yeah, I was going to notice that uh, that you that you skipped over it. Um, there's just there's it's there's just not much to it other than him getting the lightsaber, opening it up, and figuring out how it works. Um, I did find that, and this is something that I'm finding happens more and more often now. Uh, I talked about, gosh, I forget what it was. I think it was Tarkin when we did the episode on Tarkin about how it's sort of legitimizing the Clone Wars as part of canon. In that, whereas in Legends, you had so many books written prior to the Clone Wars television series beginning, and so many books trying to sort of skirt the edge of not referencing the Clone Wars cartoon because of the continuity mess that existed, and sticking to the other events from the previous Dark Horse stuff and whatnot, that it was like the Clone Wars was always the odd man out, supposed to be part of it, but like the other authors didn't really know what to do with it. And yet in Tarkin, they're referencing events from the Clone Wars, like Ahsoka's trial, as a major part of character relationship building and whatnot between Vader and Tarkin or the lack of relationship between the two. Um, kind of going into this, I found that when they start talking about this Rodian Jedi and what happened to him and, and finding the lightsaber and everything, I had a much easier time picturing him automatically as someone in the Clone Wars cartoon series as if he was part of that and visualizing it in the TV show sort of way than I think I ever would have had within Legends. I think we are starting to get to the point where a lot of us diehard Legends fans are kind of, like, our minds have figured out the schema, so to speak, to be able to process this new canon as something in and of itself, which in many ways elevates the Clone Wars and our perceptions of it relative to what we would have seen before. And that is just another of these little instances that do that, but I think it shows a, a growing, I guess, in fandom's acceptance in a lot of ways of the canon change that is something a lot have been very slow to be able to to accept since the announcement back in, what, April of last year, about almost a year ago, or around a year ago right now. Once once they uh, they, they drew the line, um, I think I, I've been a little easier to accept it. It was before they drew that line that I wasn't quite sure how I felt about the overprinting. And the, uh, the the running ramshot over everything. But once they said, yeah, this goes over here, that goes over there, I was surprisingly free. Um, I didn't worry about the new movies. I, I was kind of excited for them because I literally had no clue as to what was coming now. Um, as opposed to them following the old Legends timeline, I would have been more of, okay, so where are they going to fit this in sort of thing? And how how is that going to take place in this? And why is Chewie there? Chewy, we're home. Um, sorry, that's just to make you go, oh, yay! Out in the audience there. Yeah, well, we saw the trailer, too. Um, okay. So I guess it, this all boils down to, at least for me, it boils down to a very human story that is not essential, that shows potential that I think I would love to see Hearn come back, and I would love to see more first-person stories in Star Wars. I think this is a good book to show an example of what can be done, even if it wasn't the most expertly executed, where certain elements of it were terrific, and other parts of it very much fell flat because so much time was spent on the characterization, for instance, that they really didn't spend time with the villains and fleshing out the antagonists throughout the story. Um, but I'm open. I would love to see Hearn come back and sort of work this kind of of interpersonal and getting inside their heads magic with something more bombastic, something more epic. I mean, imagine 
you know, a battle of indoor level conflict in which you are actually seeing inside the heads of A or some of the major characters as you go along in first person. I think that would be outstanding. So to me, it's a fun read. The interpersonal stuff is really cool. It's a little weak in other areas, but I would still put it up there as one that I would say that Star Wars fans should probably read if they get a chance, if for nothing else than to see the potential for these types of stories that usually Star Wars doesn't tell. Yeah, it's going to be a fun Luke story. Uh, you know, I, I kind of liken it with Tatooine Ghost. Um, you know, not something <gasps> that you have. <laughs> I'm sorry, I started to vomit there. What did you? Oh, God. There's something about art in that book, from what I remember. Green yeah, art. Yeah, I guess Thrawn played in that one. But but I don't know. For me, I felt like it did for Luke what that book kind of did for Leia. Uh, you know, it was, it was just one more... Uh, stepping stone on the path of that character's journey in Legends, whereas this is, you know, Luke's story now in canon, in a new canon. Um, you know, I, I said at the beginning in the spoiler-free part, I really felt like most of this was to establish Luke's grief. Uh, you know, that was the big pushing factor for Luke's character through all of it. Uh, and, and I'm going to read a part here that I really think nails on that. We'll get you fixed, R2, I assured him, and then I dropped to my knees next to Nakari, eyes welling up already, and in a strange way I welcomed the blur to my vision and let the tears come. I'd never done so before because it never seemed the proper time to mourn. Ben had been there when I discovered the burnt bodies of my aunt and uncle, and I bottled everything up in shock, telling myself that the Empire was hunting us down and that we had to get to Alderaan. Then Vader cut down Ben and there was no time to mourn him either, only time to escape the Death Star and then join the Battle of Yavin. I lost my old friend Biggs to a TIE fighter during that battle, but I could hardly allow myself to think of that when I had to make my firing run down the trench. Then, incredibly, we won the day, and everyone was happy, and there was always more work to be done after that. It was never the right time to stop and feel all that I'd lost, but I had the time now. The Empire didn't know where I was, Drusil could wait until I returned, and R2 wouldn't judge me, so I finally opened up that bottle inside, and I let the grief pour. For me, that was like the quintessential moment of this book for Luke. Like, you know, it, it ties into everything that that, you know, if you sat down and watched A New Hope and that was your first experience of Star Wars, this puts you in that point of where Luke is right now. Uh, and I think that's like the biggest thing for me of the story was that moment. And, and that was for me, that was like, OK, this is this is it. This is what it all coalesces down to is this moment of grief for Luke and the journey with Nikari allowed him to finally open that up and move beyond it. And I think that's where the whole aspect of what he was feeling in the forest kind of really starts to play in because when she dies for a moment there, he almost starts to go toward the dark side. And I think that it was integral for him to get over that grief. So he doesn't have that continue to build up and push him closer and closer to that edge. So overall in the book, I'd say one of the, biggest parts of the book that I enjoyed was the science and math versus faith. Like Luke, Luke kind of represented the faith side and um, Drusil represented the, the math side. And throughout the book, it's kind of interwoven. Um, all the chapter titles have math equations in them. Um, and a lot of them I actually recognized. Some of them I have no clue as to what they mean. Um, and I thought that was I thought that was good. It, it felt it gave you this um, th this challenge that Luke was having dealing with Jerusalem and they even had the interaction at the end is that they both 
looked at each other and said, yes, we both do not understand each other whatsoever. But I enjoy that. Stop like when... bringing the smart stuff, Mr. Science Man. Sorry. Well, I love when Luke was like commenting. He's like, like read it. Like he was like writing down what Drusel had said and just put like math, math, some more math, math, something, something, something in, in, in the book. And <laughs> I greatly enjoyed that because that's sometimes how I feel when I talk to other scientists. Um, <laughs> you know, I teach world history. Actually, right now, technically, I teach everything from sixth grade up to 12th grade that's required for social studies. And I teach both semesters of each at the same time. It's something like 12 classes at once. Um, but it's all online, so it's all good. The thing that always was interesting to me when teaching it, my AP class was that there is a heavier emphasis in that class on not just science and religion and how you know you get to like the Renaissance, Scientific Revolution, Reformation, and how things are changing so heavily in Europe, and this division starts to exist in a very heavy way between science and religion. That's like never the twain shall meet. But you had people who were trying to essentially interweave the two together. You know, you had people who were looking for scientific laws and thinking of this as, and I think a lot of the way that a lot of people who are religious these days look at it, which is it's not so much that science and religion have to necessarily be enemies, so much as well, science is understanding how the universe works, and the religious side is the, well, those rules of existence were put in place by some higher power and whatnot. And it's this ongoing theme throughout history, uh, and even today in, in current events, whether we're talking about uh, religious beliefs versus scientific beliefs on, on uh, aspects of, you know, cloning and things like that, just, you know, the, uh, the abortion debate, you know, religious versus science, et cetera, et cetera. And... It's not something we really get with Star Wars. You know, a lot of times there's the belief in the Force versus non-belief in the Force, like Han mm -hmm. Solo. But to actually have a distinct division between science and the Force, the religious angle of understanding the world, the scientific angle, and having those two come to a point where they sort of see how there are some complementary elements of either side, I found that really refreshing. And it, it's... I'm surprised that it wasn't something that sprung to mind when we started talking about this because it was such a big um, – it had such an impression on me when I was reading it the first time around. It's – it was you know, it's not something we see every day. I'm not sure I'd want to necessarily see that type of discussion show up all the time the way that the force versus non-force belief tended to show mm -hmm. up a lot in this era back in, uh, say, like the Marvel comics and whatnot. But it's it, – it's cool. I mean, Hearn – is that, that that's you know, that's why I'm torn. Hearn is such a great writer on certain elements like that in bringing these things in that really make this a refreshing Star Wars book that it just boggles my mind the places where it went awry like the lack of defined villains. I don't get why with his talent we got the book that was as weak as it was in certain key aspects of it. Well, he'll definitely That's... get better over time. Uh, I love the fact that when, when they were talking about the given their society, the fact that there were given Jedi, and that even those given Jedi kept their secrets about the Force. They didn't share them all with the rest of the given. Like, it was like, so they kept the mystery alive and stuff. I, I think that Kevin's really good at, you know, you're calling them elements. I, I think that those elements, if we continue to give him more Star Wars books, I think those are going to be the things that as he works on on creating the villains and stuff like that, I think he could very easily become another Zahn's style author, you know, with creating stories that, that really just flesh things out and 
tackle these elements that, you know, we don't always stop and think about. You know, I'm, I agree with you. I wouldn't want to see it in every single book, but having an author that does go back and dwell on those things from time to time is very refreshing. So you're saying that it was a given that uh, the Jedi didn't share the secrets of the Force? I knew that joke was coming from one of us at some point. Just wasn't sure who was going to use it. I thought of it earlier. I, I couldn't find a place to put it. Uh, it was a given, all right. I said, I, maybe this is just me. We've seen, I've seen so little of given in uh, like comic book form, for instance, that I had a very hard time not picturing Drew Sill constantly with the mask from Scream. Ah, face. me too. No, I wear. I I have worn that mask under my Jedi robe before. But I'm a given Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> now, surprisingly, the one nitpick that I thought Nate was going to drop didn't happen, and I I I was ready for this nitpick because oh. I was down at Star Tours and I was riding the Star Tours ride a bunch, and I recalled. A few different posts and tweets where Nathan was going on, and I don't think it oh was just God, Kevin. about the. Is it uh-huh. about the star lines? Uh huh. It is oh. about the star lines. So yeah, I'm, I, I read on. that line, and I'm surprised it didn't come up in conversation either. Well, they keep doing this, where they're they're writing as if somehow when you're in hyperspace, you see star lines, and uh, I forget which book it was. It may have been Lords of the Sith phrased something in a way that made me think that maybe what they're saying is that the modeled. Uh, look of hyperspace is supposed to be somehow like starlight, you know, shifted or something. But yeah, so, that's that's gonna be an ongoing thing. But that's not. Even I, just I don't a think canon. it's an ongoing. I've got an answer for you, my man, because because this has been something that has plighted you for a while. Uh, yes. But when I was on Star Tours, as you jump to light space, uh, you go through that little blue swirling tunnel, and on the outside of that tunnel are, I kid you not, straight star lines from Star Trek. Uh, they are there. I was like, oh, my God, they're there. Uh, and so, yeah, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I got to tell Nathan. I got to tell Nathan. Uh, so it's both. The answer is both. The star lines are on the outside of what you would consider the straw of the blue swirly stuff that you're traveling down. Uh, almost like space is on the outside streaking by like you would see it in Star Trek. But you're going so fast you're in this tiny little tunnel of hyperspace. Uh, but, yeah, it was Star Tours that, that I discovered that, which makes me want to go and pop in my DVDs and see if it was always like that it, or if that's something that they've recently added to the Star Tours ride. Yes, my, my recent experience of Star Tours ended with me trying to find a garbage can immediately thereafter since uh, I get very <laughs> motion sick. Oh, did you go on a Coruscant? Was that because that one puts you in a serious dive? <laughs> uh, Kashyyyk. And then I don't remember much after that. Uh, oh, yeah, you Kashyyyk guys drops too. You suck. <laughs> I so want to do that. That's our main reason why we keep my wife and I keep talking about wanting to go to Disney at some point where our plan right now is if there's a celebration in Orlando in two years, that's going to be a trip that includes Disney because I'm dying to do star tours. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I just want to see it. Like I've watched the videos where people have taken cameras in with them and videotape stuff from the ride and put it up on YouTube, but it's designed for those specific 3d glasses, the 3d glasses like that I use with my PlayStation television to play 3d games and 3d blu-rays yeah. don't work with oh, that particular things i style. had to take off <laughs> yeah, though, though, uh well no wonder you were getting sick because then you get that weird like blurring of the the images and whatnot i just i'm dying to try out the new star tours i used to have and i and this is one of the more embarrassing things i'm sure about my star wars fandom uh my first job was actually um helping out around my dad's veterinary office and part of that was to be able to earn the money um, to justify a purchase that we had just made while at Disney World at Star Tours. 
I picked up a couple RPG books, and this is when I was relatively young, you know, like a, like when I say first job, you know, not any way what could have been a legal job. I was just helping out, and it was almost like doing chores to make up for it, um, to earn it like allowance. But I bought the and and Michael Jackson's style would make mm-hmm. that this look tame by comparison, perhaps, but not by much. Um, there was a silver reflective Star Tours jacket you used to be able to get <laughs> that looked like it came out of Michael Jackson's closet. And I bought one as a kid. I have no idea whatever happened to that thing. It's been gone for years. Captain uh, EO came back for it. <laughs> yeah, but I loved Star Tours and just and in fact when I was when I was there, my start my horrible Star Tours experience was that when I was there I bought a little disposable camera, I think it was, and took pictures of every single droid, everything as you're walking through on the original Star Tours. And when we got back, I can't remember if it was a disposable camera or if it was just a roll of film that I got that we put in my dad's camera. But either way, when we got back, that roll of film was gone. No. And years later, um, the same thoughtful person that I was dating in college that actually wound up replacing my blight of a paperback of Heir to the Empire with a a hardback and finished that hardback side of the collection back in the day, um, took a trip with family down to Disney World and brought me back, and I still have them, photos of every droid and every Star Wars prop from there to replace the ones that I lost on that family vacation. <laughs> nice. uh, I did, Star Tours just calls to me, you know, screw the rest of Disney. Mm-hmm. I want to go to Star Tours. My wife doesn't understand why I want to get right back in the line and go again. I'm like, I, it was one of the two I just was on. I got to do all 55 or whatever. I and this is, you know, them. I would do that back in the day when there was no difference between the original, like the, the first <laughs> run and the second, the third, and the fourth. They're always going to be the same. Well, see, that that's the thing about the new one now. There's so many options. Uh, Coruscant, when, when you go on to that one, you, you join in right at the beginning of episode three and you're in the middle of that battle and then all of a sudden you take a hit to the steering and the whole ship nosedives. It is probably, of the ones I've done, the most, oh my God, I'm going to fall out of my seat uh, of all the experience you have. Because when that sucker dives, it feels like you're straight nosediving with it. You're like, oh, oh my God. Uh, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same way. So if they have it in Orlando and you're going and I'm going, we'll have to definitely make a trip to Disney World oh, together yeah. and go on that ride. <laughs> yeah. And again, that is part of my argument also of why they need to take the 3D version of the films. And wasn't Revenge of the Sith supposed to have aired in 3D at Celebration? Did it? It, it did, yes. It did. That they need to release 3D Blu-rays of the Star Wars films that they've done in 3D. They've done all three prequel films now in 3D. We know that those masters exist. Mm-hmm. Put them out on 3D Blu-ray because those of us with, you know, 3D TVs, and granted, mine's not a big one. I just got that PlayStation branded one for like 180 bucks at one point. Um, but a PlayStation and a PlayStation 4 can play 3D Blu-rays. Please, Lucasfilm, give us that because I want that type of experience. Even without that motion-controlled stuff, yeah. I want to see stuff in Revenge of the Sith, for instance, in that way. It wasn't a great 3D conversion for Phantom Menace when I saw it in the theater, but it's got to be, you know, it just a more bombastic, to use that phrase again, experience to watch something like Revenge of the Sith mm-hmm. in 3D. I, I, I love the idea, but I don't know if we're ever going to get to see it at home. See, I think we are. I, I think now that we've got Star Wars going digital like we do, now we know that there's going to be Star Wars Xfinity uh, games, uh, you know, those figures coming out in it, version it, 3. You mean Disney Infinity. You just said Xfinity, yeah. like Comcast. It's, okay, that's I knew I it's had it Comcastic. backwards. 
It is Comcast. No, Disney Xfinity, they finally got version three is going to have Star Wars stuff coming out. We've got our digital version of the saga. Uh, you know, now that we know that there are versions of them out there, they've been made. I think it's a no brainer that it's coming. I mean, you know, they, they were quiet about the whole Disney Infinity thing. They didn't want to let us know it was coming. And then, bam, here it comes. I was actually that one kind of surprised me. It's like, oh, there goes my paycheck. So I'd say at least for the prequels, we probably should have 3Ds with the, with all the New Hope and Fox thing. Um, we, that would be a little trickier. Well, I mean, but at the same time, I mean, the argument was that because of the way that you have to go through Fox to distribute a New Hope, it's the only one that has that as part of it because Lucas retained Lucasfilm control over the distribution rights of the other films, um, which is what you were referring to there. I'm not trying to tell Jim this. He already knows this. I'm telling the audience this. Um you would have thought that box sets would have been a thing of the past or something very difficult to do, and yet all they had to do to release these as a package deal, as a digital collection, was they changed the fanfare and removed the 20th Century Fox bits from the opening of episodes 1, 2, 3, 5, and 6, replaced it, left it on A New Hope, and released them no harm, no foul, it seems like, on the digital stuff. So I've actually got a lot more hope now of being able to see that happen not just because of that, but because also the whole thing where, um, you know, we see Sony and Disney working together on trying to bring Spider-Man into Civil War, for instance. This idea mm -hmm. that there's these companies are starting to realize that they've got these properties with some measure of shared ownership, and it's better for everybody financially to bring them together and make even more money than to say, you know, to have a pissing contest and say, well, no, this is mine, and not allow that. I, I'm well, hoping even, for a big set at some point, but I'm really hoping they don't go, here's a set, here's a box set of episodes one through seven. Then a few years later, here's a box set of episodes one through eight. Now here's one of one through nine, because I collect all these things and I don't want to be broke. <laughs> well, they also had two Quicksilvers in the X-Men and the Avengers movies, which ironically was played by Kick-Ass and Ass-Kicker from Kick-Ass 2. I thought that was kind of cool. And we have gone very, very far afield. So um, I, I think I've, I've kind of got out my last thoughts on Heir to the Jedi. Any more last thoughts we want to add on Heir to the Jedi before we wrap things up? Anybody? No, I think I'm all set. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And uh, Jim, any uh, contact information you want to give to the uh, Beyonders out there as we give you our fond farewell for this week? Sure, you can follow me on Twitter at Jazzinator, J-A-Z-I-N-A-T-O-R. And I also have my own Star Wars timeline, which is at StarWarsTimelineAlmanac.com. Excellent. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one if you will not only can you post comments to us about the show we love interacting with you fellow fans so if you have any star wars and or eu slash legends questions or you just want to comment about a past episode fire off you can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at 
StarWarsFanWorks.com. And speaking of past episodes, you can find them all at www.StarWarsReport.com slash BeyondTheFilms. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles that you can explore. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. And Jim. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the next book we cover might actually be essential. Or that it'll be within the next three months. The Force Awakens will all be in first person's perspective. Ooh. Oh man, you talk about motion sickness. <laughs> One person's eyes. Oh, it, no, have a camera placed on the ball of a BB, a BB-8, just rolling around. <laughs> Obama deducing. and even on some of the other uh, things like you know Twitter and what have let me say that again because I just completely <laughs> that up out of that now consider that your spoiler I'll do that again quantity P plus L times the quantity A plus N equals PA plus PN plus P uh... see I All like right. the way it worked go ahead Jim I'll let you do it and then I'll jump on you okay um, good, uh, actually, you're gonna want to jump in not jump yeah, on. yeah if so yeah. then I will leave I, I'll, I'll let you guys have the room real. Oh. I'll let you have the room it's 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 fine. I, I I'm I'm uh, free-minded. Um, oh, should I begin? Before I began, I gave my person. Sorry. She says, "Whoa, I'm not encouraging you to." T-. She says, "Whoa, I'm not encouraging you to." Ah, damn it. She says, "Whoa." But I could hardly allow myself to think of when I could make. Hardly allow myself to think of that when I could. T- but I can hardly allow myself to think of that when, hey, ah, this isn't me. This is just a <laughs> in the writing. But I could hardly allow myself to think of that. Okay. But I can hardly self. I'm glad you guys are enjoying these bloopers. <laughs> Use your words. <laughs> Let Earth make words. But I can hardly allow myself to think math, of that. Math, math, math. <laughs> I just got through it. They foiled your reading. But I can hardly allow myself to think of that when I had to make myself. (laughs) So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, it's been Mark and Whistler. Yeah, that's not working. What the hell was that? He just got attacked! (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not saving that as a ringtone.